I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and a happy President's Day. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's February the 20th, so it's somewhat appropriate. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply that you have a 10 American presidents episode to listen to. Those of you that do follow me on Facebook will know that for the last maybe four months at some point I've been saying next week there will be a show. Now quite simply um, my life has been a little bit hectic in the intervening period. Right now I'm actually sending you this message from California and in between international travel it's been somewhat testing and trying to get this podcast put out. Quite simply, 10 American President podcasts take up a lot of time. Now, I haven't exactly totted up all the man hours it's taken Adam and myself to create this show, but it's at least round about the 100 hours mark in terms of research, narration, editing, etc. So, what I would like to ask you to do is if you do have any spare coins rattling around in your virtual wallet, i.e. on your credit or debit card, and you do like what we do here at 10 American Presidents, why don't you head over to our website and send us a President's Day gift. You can do that either by uh, simply donating via PayPal or you can go onto patreon.com and become one of our regular Patreons. The address of the website is 10usp.com. That is the numbers 1 and 0 usp.com. Now, this is not the full Grant episode. Um, it's approximately some 25 minutes. I can safely say that in about a couple of days, the full show should be ready for your downloading pleasure. I hope you enjoy it. It's just a taster of things to come. Here is Adam Vanami 
and a short taster of his narration of the life of President Grant. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Now this month in the Agora Podcast Network, we are featuring the excellent podcast, The History of England by one David Crowther. If you haven't uh, listened to it already, you haven't really listened to one of the best history podcasts out there, we recommend that you get over to iTunes or on Acast and listen to it today. Ulysses S. Grant, born Hiram Ulysses Grant, was born April 27, 1822, and died July 23, 1885. He was the 18th President of the United States, serving from 1869 to the end of his second term in 1877. Ulysses Grant was born in Point Pleasant, Ohio, which prior to the railroad boom was very much an agricultural and agrarian existence. If you lived there, you were most likely a farmer. And if you got your goods from point A to point B, it was by horse, either by horseback or by cart. So Grant grew up surrounded by farming. He very much started to romanticize the idea of being a farmer. And as we'll see later in life, he'll try to make farming work for himself and fail miserably several times. Now, the second thing that really starts to mold Grant at a very young age is his love of horses. He gets a reputation as being a very good horse handler at a very young age. And his father had had a stable, and he was a tanner, which, for those of us who don't know what a tanner is, it's a person who cures hides by using chemicals to make them last longer. Grant loved the stable side of it, where he got to be around horses all the time, but he hated the tanner side of, of his father's business. And one of uh, Grant's early gaffes in business in life was uh, his father decided that they needed a new horse. And so he sent Grant down to the owner of the horse to negotiate. And he, he had told Grant before, Ulysses, start with the price of $20. If he pushes back on you, tell me off from $22.50. And if he finally pushes you over, give him $25. So Grant immediately proudly goes up to the owner of the horse and says, My father said that I'm to offer you $20. And if not, I'll go to $22.50. 
and if not that, I'll go to $25. So it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to figure out what he ended up paying for the horse, but this is really the first documented story of what was a lifelong series of gaffes from a business perspective. Now, Jesse Grant, Ulysses' father, was a tanner, but he was also involved in local politics. He was never big on a state level or never did anything federal, but he did hold a couple local posts. And what made him interesting was the fact that he was a Whig, which, prior to the world we live in now, where you have the Republican and the Democrat parties, you had a, a Whig party which was dominating politics for a very long time in U.S. history. And a lot of the power base for the Whigs was in the South. And in order to be prominent in the Whig party, you either had to be a Southerner who was a slave owner, or you had to be a Northerner who would appease Southern slavery. So to have Jesse Grant be an abolitionist as well as being a Whig kind of gives you an idea of what Grant's home life, Ulysses' home life, was like growing up and the political sentiments that surrounded him every day. He also was surrounded by slaves, working side by side with them on farms, you know, odd jobs here and there. But you really start to get an idea of what his philosophy looked like as he was growing up. He loved horses. He was surrounded by slaves, learned how to respect them, romanticized farming, and was hating the tanning trade. So Jesse Grant had no idea what to do with him. Ulysses is very listless. And it's a situation where Grant's been educated, but he was never really an exemplary student. He wants nothing to do with the family business either. So Jesse Grant decides, I want to get a free education for my son. I have no idea what he's going to do. So I wonder if I can get him into West Point. Now West Point then, as it is today, you have to get a nomination to get in. And back then what happened was you would go and you would take the entrance exam once you got there but the nomination there was no prerequisite from an academic standards perspective you would go and if you pass the test you would get in and there was a local family a local prominent family where that had sent their son and he failed the entrance exam so Ulysses was nominated to take his place Jesse Grant loved his son but he also said, great, I'm getting my son a free education. He's listless. He's going to go into the Army. We'll get him a career. So Grant was really not too excited about going to West Point. But what he was excited about was the Odyssey-like journey it would take for him to get there. He was going to take a train for the first time. He was going to see the canals in Pennsylvania. He didn't think he was going to pass the examination either. Because, like I said, he was not a very great student. So he just kind of took as long as he possibly could to get there. He loved seeing Philadelphia, he saw New York, and he arrived as late as he possibly could to his entrance exam. But he had an issue when he got to West Point, because in the haste to get the appointment out to West Point, the nomination was made in the name of Ulysses S. Grant and not Hiram Grant. So he basically had two choices. If you want to stay at West Point, you have to change your name to Ulysses S. Grant, and that's how he got his name. The West Point of the late 1830s, early 1840s, while being a prestigious organization, it probably isn't as prestigious as the one we think about today. 
Grant really wasn't that enamored with going to West Point to begin with. He kind of looked at the whole experience as just an opportunity to have a big adventure. In fact, the first year he got there, Congress actually, you know, in the idea of having a peace-loving, non-militaristic republic, actually put a, a vote forth to defund West Point, which obviously got shot down. Grant was famously hoping that it would get shot down so he could say, look, I tried this and, and I, West Point doesn't exist anymore so I can just go home. During the war, actually, for many different reasons, in uh, 1863, Congress was really upset with West Point as an existence because a lot of the Southern generalship came from West Point. So a lot of folks in Congress, a lot of congressmen and senators looked at it as an institution that had traved the Southern generalship. The year is 1843, and Grant had had a pretty average academic standing at West Point. He really wanted to be in the the Dragoons, which is what we would call the cavalry in the more modern sense. But that posting was full, so he was really stuck with the infantry, and he became quartermaster. He graduates, and he is stationed at a place called Jefferson Barracks uh, near St. Louis. And his roommate is a gentleman named Fred Dent who has a sister named Julia, and they become married. And at this point, tensions are starting to arise with Mexico. But you have to go back a little bit and realize that Mexico had possession of most of what is the modern United States today, all the way up to Oregon, Colorado, uh, parts of the Louisiana Purchase were contested. And this was an era of manifest destiny for the United States. We were starting to get our national identity. We were moving westward, and this was starting to create tensions with Mexico. Now, Texas had been a territory of Mexico, and back in the 1830s, General Santa Ana was the de facto dictator of Mexico, and the Texians, who were the, the residents of the Texas territory, had kind of a semi-independence from Mexico and a level of autonomy that Santa Ana was sick of and wanted to quash. Uh, some of this involves slavery and other issues like that. But bottom line is Santa Ana marches and you know everyone knows the story of the Alamo. But the most important part of the Mexican-Texan independence war, the most important battle was the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836, where Sam Houston captures Santa Ana and demanded Texas independence at the border of the Rio Grande River for the Treaty of Velasco. Now, Santa Ana had to give in to whatever their demands were. Santa Ana takes this treaty back to Mexico, and it is not ratified. Mexican legislature decided it would be at the Nueces River further up north. So you have a situation where after the independence of Texas in 1836, a really uneasy peace is maintained between the New Republic of America and Mexico. But by the 1840s, manifest destiny overtakes the situation and it really grips America. Texas is subsumed into the Union and President Polk books to start a fight with Mexico. So the U.S. sends an army of observation under Zachary Taylor down to the Nueces River. And they know that the Mexicans would look at them crossing the Nueces as a affront to their sovereignty. But they're basically down there to pick a fight, and they do. And, you know, they, they skirmish with Mexican troops. 
and say that the Mexicans fired first and, you know, we're up in arms and we're at war with Mexico and marching down to the Rio Grande. The New York Tribune, May 11th, 1846. The War with Mexico. Congress appropriates $10 million and proposes to raise 50,000 volunteers. Mr. Harrelson's bill, amended, has passed both houses. In the House, by a vote of 174 to 14, the title is so amended as to read, An Act to Provide for the Prosecution of the Existing War Between the United States and the Republic of Mexico. It authorizes the President to call for and receive the services of 50,000 volunteers and appropriate $10 million to defray the expenses of the war. The bill providing for the increase of the rank and file of the army and to augment the number of men in each company from 40 to 100 and increasing the term of service from three to five years has passed both houses. At this point, Grant really kind of gets his first view of wartime politics. He's kind of disgusted with it. You know, later in life, he'll say that that this was a bully war where a, a, a larger force, you know, was beating up on a smaller force. And it was there for nothing more than to expand slavery. So besides getting the first glimpse of wartime politics, he gets a real good view of two different kinds of generals. One is Winfield Scott and the other is Zachary Taylor. And they both have two very different styles. Scott was very much a traditional, polished general, wore every decoration he possibly could on his uniform, and more of a strategist, a back-behind-the-scenes, let his underlings, the, the actual troops in battle type of general. Where Zachary Taylor in, in the Army of Observation was more of a rough rider, get himself out into the front lines type of general. And Grant really started to identify more with Zachary Taylor. As much as he would come to admire Winfield Scott's style later in the Mexican campaign, he really felt like he had a much better feel for what was going on in the battle by being out there himself. And he would do this many times in the future in the Civil War. And he also found that he was very brave and really did not wilt under battle. So outside of Grant having these two great role models to learn from, there were bigger politics at the time. President Polk, who was a Democrat and the president at the time, had a real conundrum. Winfield Scott was a popular Whig candidate from 1812, and he was a war hero from that war. And Polk looked at it as if he propped up Winfield Scott, that he would be basically electing his, his uh, successor. So he propped up Zachary Taylor to start out with. And Scott had a really good plan of invading Mexico via Veracruz. So you have to picture the Mexican-American border as we see it today, and you have Taylor's forces on the border clashing with, with the Mexican forces up there, and you have Winfield Scott essentially wanting to outflank and go via the Gulf of Mexico and take Mexico City that way via ship. Now, it was a good plan, but it, politically it was bad for Polk. Eventually, though, Taylor is making gains, but they're not obviously being as expedient as they can be to win the war. So Scott's plan gets greenlit. Grant's force gets attached to Scott's invasion force. And Polk accedes to the plan to send Scott to march on Mexico City by landing in Veracruz. Once Winfield Scott received approval from President Polk to invade Mexico via Veracruz, 
Winfield Scott detached soldiers under Zachary Taylor's forces, which were in northern Mexico, and attached them to his own forces that were invading via the sea. And Grant was part of these soldiers. The, the plan worked amazingly well, and Grant was a, a quartermaster, which was great because he loved animals, but at the same time, it really kind of kept him in the rear guard, which was kind of frustrating for him. He said many times that he was scared of war and the thought of it. So Grant uh, noted, noticed that he really got worked up about the anticipation of battle a lot, and, and he was really scared going into his first battle. But once he became under fire, he, he really became a different man, and he became very calm, cool, and collected. Whatever that fight-or-flight mentality most of us have, he just seemed to lack. And at the Battle of Chapultepec, even though he was a quartermaster, he became really un- un- impatient with not being in, in, you know, on the front lines. So he grabbed a horse from a fallen captain and rode into battle on the front lines. Uh, to the point where he even uh, grabbed a howitzer and, above the objections of a, of a priest, went up to a church steeple and held down Mexican artillery, uh, which he was recognized for and, and promoted for. Lo- moving forward, they just kept winning battle over battle over the Mexican forces. And really, what was interesting to Grant and what stuck with him later was the quality of troops in the U.S. over the quality of troops of, of the Mexican forces. The Mexican forces were, in his mind, kind of a surf-like force, not very inspired. While they had great numbers, they really weren't a quality fighting force. And the U.S. forces, in kind of a risky move to a lot of people at the time, were hundreds of miles away from uh, shore and and their supply lines and fighting with an inferior force. But because of the way that they were organized and their generalship, they, they won. And to the point where... They got to Mexico City, the government absconded, and they almost didn't have anyone to negotiate with to settle a peace treaty with. So in 1848, the, the war is, is over. It's an army of occupation, and the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is signed. The border is now the Rio Grande. Texas is no longer the frontier. We now have the territories of Colorado, Utah, California, which is a very, very big deal because in 1849, the gold rush starts. And that's a really transformative event for the United States. Grant, in reflecting about this, even though he thought it was an unjust war, he was impressed that the U.S. stopped where they did because in his mind, and he's probably right, the U.S. could have gone, taken everything Mexico had all the way down to Mexico City. There was nothing Mexico could do to stop them. The war turned into an occupation at that point, and Grant did a bunch of different things as far as exploring Mexico. He really loved the serenity of Mexico and even tried some mountain climbing, which went horrible for him, where he got sun-blinded. But he just really got bored. And this is the first time in his life, and this is going to be a couple times, where Julia really be- became something that weighed heavily on his mind. He, she became detached. She became distant. Her letters became more frequent. She would start to taunt him about other suitors. And he really became very, very anxious to get home and get on with his married life. It was one thing for him, you know, the, the political side of the war was an unsavory thing for him, but he really 
came to life when he was in battle. But once he became a became a part of a war of occupation and not on the move and not fighting, he really just became bored and wanted to get home. So at the end of the war, his friend, who he would meet again later at Fort Donaldson, Simon Bolivar Buckner, lent him money to go home, and he did. So, Grant, after he, he takes his friend's money, he would meet again at Fort Donaldson later and during the Civil War. And he goes home and he decides, you know, do I want to be in the military anymore? And this is another case where he didn't really have a passion for the military, but his choices really were, do I want to work in a tannery or do I want to work in the military? And he kind of moves on to a good part of his life where in 1848, he marries Julia Dent and he starts having that domestic life that he really has been longing for for a long time. And while not prosperous, they're comfortable and they're finally together. They start having babies. And after a brief stop in Detroit, they end up in Sackett's Harbor off Lake Erie, where there's a military encampment. And they're really enjoying living there. They have a great social life. In 1852, while at Sackett's Harbor, Julia Grant is pregnant again. They're in domestic bliss, but Grant gets orders to proceed to Fort Vancouver. And this is really kind of a blow to him because Julia is pregnant. You have to put yourself back in the times. Going from what was then the East Coast to Fort Vancouver, which is on the Pacific Coast, is not a simple thing. There's no trains. There's no transcontinental railroad yet. There's no real maps even that you can count on. The best way to get down there is to go all the way around the tip of South America by boat, which is a very, very long trip. So what they do is they decide to go in an overland route over Panama. In 1852, he sets off for Fort Vancouver, and the way they decide to do it is go overland through Panama. And his quartermaster experience really comes in, in handy here because this group is really not set for it to, to go overland. It's it's a really it's a jungle-infested area with mosquitoes. He actually kind of acts as a quartermaster again and gets mules and and negotiates uh, you know to, to procure a bunch of mules to get everyone over land. After a perilous trip overland through Panama and, and back into a ship, finally arrives at Fort Vancouver. He's, he again starts becoming depressed and listless. There's not a lot going on there. He gets some really good experience as far as seeing the conditions that the Indians are living in. And that really later in life will shape his views on as a president because that's really the only thing as president he's very passionate about as an issue is the treatment of Indians. However, he's in an area where a lot of prosperity is happening very quick with, with the gold rush. Not so much in Fort Vancouver, but eventually at Fort Humboldt in Northern California. What this really forces him to do is figure out ways to supplement his military income. Julia's pregnant. They have kids. They really want to get ahead. He really is afraid of squalor. He tries to start a farm. He gets into an investment with one of his friends, loans him $1,500. His name was Elijah Camp. That basically was his entire salary that he had earned since leaving Sackett's Harbor. And then his friend convinced him that he should tear up the, the promissory note because he didn't want to have that hanging over him. So he's basically out 1500 bucks. All of his money is gone. He's tried to plant crops on, on the river, which the crops fail. 
he's just not doing very well. And so at the at the tail end of his tenure at, at Fort Vancouver, he's becoming depressed again. His wife is becoming distant. She's not writing as much as she used to. And in 1853, he got assigned to Fort Humboldt, which is in Northern California. And he really starts to get depressed. And he's universally accepted it at Fort Humboldt. He, he really turned to the bottle. And I think, you know, there's patterns of behavior that where he starts drinking. And a lot of times it's because he is listless and he's without Julia. And those two things together really took a, a very depressed army captain and, uh, and really toyed with him. And rumors really started circulating throughout the entire army. You have to remember, the army wasn't that big the way we think of it now. And this will come back to bite him later when he's trying to, to seek an appointment when the Civil War breaks out. His uh, commanding officer, Buchanan, heard that, that Grant was intoxicated off duty and disparaged him for it. For whatever reason, Julian never was really interested in coming out west. He would constantly ask her, you know, when can you come out? I, I have the money to get you out here. And she was never interested in it. So I think he felt like he was losing grip on his family. For that reason, he resigned the army and set back off for home. 